So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of All My Movies. I'm your host, Dan Merle, and thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who sat and watched and listened and taken in the first two episodes of this show. Last week, we had Alex Winter on to talk about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. This week, we are covering one of the most seminal movies, uh, not just in my movie collection, but in my life, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And not only are we covering that movie, which would be enough to get me excited, I'm so lucky to be able to welcome to the show today Dee Wallace, who plays the kid's mother, Mary, in this movie, but has also played so many other memorable roles in so many movies and TV shows over the years. Her interview will be coming up later on in the show. Please stay tuned for that because she was wonderful and dropped so much great knowledge about the movie that even I didn't know. So we'll talk to Dee Wallace in just a little bit, but before we do that, let's talk about the movie at hand E.T., The Extraterrestrial, one of the biggest box office hits of all time, came out in the summer of 1982. But let's go back to the beginning and where this movie came from. And the germ of this idea came into Steven Spielberg's mind while he was filming another one of his successful movies about aliens, 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. E.T. was a film I actually started thinking about while I was directing Close Encounters. And when the little alien goes back to the mothership, um, I just imagined, what if he didn't? So that just continued to feed my, my thinking about, I really want to continue. I know I have another story in me, and I always knew it was going to, I didn't know it was going to be called E.T., but it was always going to be about a boy who finds an alien. I had that story from childhood in my brain. Now, originally, Steven Spielberg had planned a different alien project, a darker movie called Night Skies. There was even a script commissioned for it written by John Sayles. But after reading the script, Spielberg decided that it was too dark for him. He didn't want to go this negative. He didn't want to go this, as he described it, violent. It's about aliens terrorizing a family out in the middle of nowhere. He instead decided he wanted to go a little bit warmer. And a lot of that desire was that he wanted to express a recurring theme that we see in a lot of his work, which is divorce. It's something that touched his family. It's something that touched has touched so many families over the years, and he wanted E.T. to speak to that theme very specifically. It was a childhood fantasy to tell the story of a best friend and a special friend who rescues a young boy from the sadness of a divorce. To realize this vision, Spielberg brought on as the screenwriter Melissa Matheson, a young screenwriter whose work Spielberg had admired on a recent remake of The Black Stallion. I would work for four or five days, and then I would go meet with Steven, and then we'd go over what I had, and I'd go back, and I'd fix it, change it, move on. It was smooth and fast. It's never happened that easily again. It was eight weeks, and it just flew by. 
We talk about Steven Spielberg with this movie so much, but I really do think that Melissa Matheson's contributions to the film are criminally overlooked because she not only wrote the screenplay, she served as an associate producer on the film and did a lot of work with the cast, helping develop character, and particularly with the kids, even on set. It was great fun because they were they're just a lot of fun to hang out with. They'd come up with something they thought was better, and I finally had to kind of show them who was boss, I think, at some point, tell them that I was the writer. They were the kids. <laughs> They'd have to do what I said. Melissa Matheson's screenwriting work on E.T. would get recognized by the Academy. She was nominated for her screenplay at the Academy Awards, and she would go on to pen several other screenplays, including Martin Scorsese's Kundun and The BFG, which was sadly her last film and her last collaboration with Steven Spielberg before she passed away from cancer in 2015. With Matheson's screenplay in place, Steven Spielberg took the project to Columbia, the studio that he had worked with most recently, but they passed on the movie. And I know in hindsight, this always seems like, what were they thinking? But at that time, E.T., which was seen as a kid's movie by most people, including Spielberg, was not considered a good financial investment. Disney itself, the the banner holder for kids' films, was struggling at this point in the 1980s. So to invest $10 million, which was the budget of E.T., into a kids' movie was a pretty risky investment at that time. So once Columbia had passed, Spielberg returned to an old familiar friend, Sid Sheinberg, who was head of MCA, the parent company of Universal. And Sid Sheinberg, you can see why Spielberg would go to him, because he is the executive that had Spielberg's back during the production of Jaws, that backed him as the film was going over budget, as the film was going over schedule. This was an executive that Spielberg trusted, and as it turns out, a very canny executive because he greenlit the picture, it was under production at Universal Studios, and it ended up being one of the biggest financial hits in the history of the studio. As a matter of fact, under Sid Sheinberg, Universal produced three films that broke the record for highest box office gross domestically of all time. Spielberg's Jaws, E.T., and then in 1993, Jurassic Park. With the movie greenlit, pre-production went into full speed, and the first thing that had to be done was the design of E.T. himself. This was an alien that had to interact with the cast, interact with the cast of children, believably have a relationship and a friendship with Elliot, the lead character of the film. To solve this problem, Steven Spielberg turned to Carlo Rambaldi, who was, at that time, one of the most sought-after creature designers in Hollywood. Rambaldi had already redesigned King Kong for the 1976 remake. He'd worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind to design the aliens in that film. And Rambaldi had a hand in designing maybe the most famous alien of all time, the xenomorph in Ridley Scott's Alien. Rambaldi and his shop were in charge of manufacturing and figuring out how to execute the design for the alien head. I make three little models in clay with little different anatomical points. One skin, one little fat, another, etc. With different dimension of the face. And I refined it until it was something that I wanted. Really just going into the design of E.T. is a fascinating process when you see how many different ways they brought E.T. to life. Sometimes you have an E.T. rubber puppet standing there with his hands being operated by a human. There's footage in some of the behind the scenes materials of someone named Caprice Roth who had long fingers who was oftentimes the hands of E.T. and would reach up around the body of E.T. to provide those movements. Sometimes E.T. was operated by this complex series of levers and pulleys and somewhat have his eyes and some would have his eyebrows and some would have his forehead it really does go to show you 
the kind of innovation you had to have back in that day when there weren't computer animated effects. And you don't have to wonder what E.T. would have looked like with modern technology because we've seen that version of the film and we'll get to it when we talk about the uh, 20th anniversary re-release. A great looking E.T. was only part of the equation, however, because so much of the film relied also on casting three young leads who could carry the film. The first child cast was Drew Barrymore, who is now a veteran actor, but at that time had only had one other film role cast as Elliot's younger sister, Gertie. Drew was the first person I hired on the movie, and, and I had met a lot of possible Gerties. But when Drew came in and began to tell me that she was a punk rock and roll band leader, I said, you know, I could use that imagination in this picture. She could help me make my movie better. I met with Stephen on Poltergeist, but he thought that I was more right for E.T. So it was, um, there was nothing wrong with that in my mind. I thought, okay, great. I'm glad to know you think I'm more right for something. Next up was the lead role of Elliot. And this movie really rests on the shoulders of Elliot as much or more than it rests on the shoulders of E.T., And it was nailed by Henry Thomas in what I think is one of the best screen tests I have ever seen. You can't take him away, he's mine! But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says, he's my best friend. And you can't take him away! Okay, kid, you got the job. (laughs) Robert McNaughton rounded out the trio of young lead roles as Elliot and Gertie's older brother Michael and Steven Spielberg brought in two veteran actors to cast the two key adult roles. In the part of Keys, Spielberg cast Peter Coyote, although because none of the adults besides Mary were seen until the third act of the film, it was Peter Coyote's pants who got a substantial chunk of his screen time. You know, I'm only seen from the waist down for half of it. I got a letter from an old girlfriend who said, I recognized you the moment you came on screen. And as Mary, the kid's mother, who's struggling with the recent divorce happening in their family, Spielberg cast my guest today, Dee Wallace. I knew after the first read, I called my agent and my exact words were, this film could change the world. I knew. I always knew. I don't know why anybody else didn't know. (laughs) The filming of E.T. took place in mid to late 1981 from, as I mentioned before, a $10.5 million budget. And one thing that I wanted to point out, and it was really underscored as I researched more and more about this movie, is just how much of this movie's success is due to an amazingly talented roster of women that worked on this movie. Not just Melissa Matheson as associate producer and screenwriter, but the first assistant director, Katie Emdy, the editor of the film, Carol Littleton, and producing her first feature film ever, Kathleen Kennedy. With a strong core creative team, Steven Spielberg actually took a different approach to how he shot the movie in conjunction with director of photography Alan Daviel, who sadly passed away just this year from complications due to COVID-19. Spielberg decided not to go with the heavily storyboarded approach that he'd used in past films and to shoot much more improvisationally to get that energy of being a child and seeing the movie through a child's eyes. I sketched about 40% of this movie on paper and then decided that I was being penciled into a corner. The kids, I think, in many ways are more spontaneous than than adults because they haven't learned to censor things yet. They haven't gotten to the age where they know it's not right to say that because it's not socially acceptable. So kids really say what comes into their mind first, and if I can get that on the first take, all these happy mistakes, then it's gonna make the film a lot more spontaneous. 
I think this approach is really smart too because Spielberg had to be very malleable because in working with kids, especially kids as young as Drew Barrymore, the film had to be presented almost as reality. In fact, Drew Barrymore considered E.T., even though she knew that he wasn't a real alien, one of her friends on the set. I knew on a brain level that he wasn't real, but I believe that everyone that made him come to life was sort of a part of what made him real and that he was, you know, one of the first most important friends of my life. There are so many great behind the scenes materials that you can find on E.T. We're going to talk about some of the ones that you can find on the disc here in a second. But when you look at behind the scenes footage, you really do see how well Steven Spielberg worked with these kids and how easily he was able to adapt to directing them. Uh, but also just the sense of fun and this energy that he imbued the entire set with. There's this great footage from Halloween where Spielberg directed the whole day dressed up as an old lady uh, just to make the kids more comfortable and to get this sense of fun on set. Spielberg has said that at the time he made E.T., he didn't have children, and in a way he felt like he adopted the cast of this movie as his children before, during, and after working on the movie, which I would imagine made it even more difficult when he had to do things as a director that didn't exactly make his child actors happy. It's very loud, and it makes you jump and cry even more. And they're putting it on his chest now, and he presses the button, and it goes, POW! <coughs> So but the relationship that really had to develop to make this movie work was the one between Steven Spielberg and his young star, Henry Thomas. And there is also some great footage of how their relationship worked. And when people say, what does a director do? I think if you watch how he was able to direct him and get that kind of performance out of his young lead actor, it goes to show you that Steven Spielberg is not just a guy who knows how to do shots or make something look pretty or who relies too heavily on things like John Williams and all of the great people around him. He knew how to speak in a language that he could communicate what he needed from these child actors, which is not always an easy task. Once shooting was complete, editor Carol Littleton took over to get the movie cut down. Littleton had just recently come off of Lawrence Kasdan's steamy thriller, Body Heat, in 1981. And for the musical accompaniment, Spielberg teamed up with an old friend for the sixth time, composer John Williams. When he takes off, even though what's on the screen is one of the most silliest temps I've ever seen. Yeah, well, uh, that's just a mechanical... When uh, it takes off, yeah. it just explodes. Yeah, it just soars. As the film took shape, Spielberg said there was about 40 minutes that he cut out of the movie. Some of those deleted scenes have been included in later reissues and on DVD, etc. But there are some that really haven't seen wide circulation, one of which would have reunited Spielberg with his Indiana Jones star, Harrison Ford. There was a scene where Harrison Ford played the principal. Now, you never saw Harrison's face, but you saw his body, you saw his hands, and you heard his voice. I see you fine young people from good homes, every advantage. Once the movie was completed, it was released in the famous summer of 1982, which produced so many classic films. It hit theaters on June 11th, 1982, one week after Poltergeist and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and two weeks before Blade Runner and The Thing. Summer of 82 was a great time to be a movie fan. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. 
E.T. immediately became a box office sensation. It smashed records. It was the number one movie for 13 of the next 16 weeks. It opened in June. It was still the number one movie over Thanksgiving weekend. It recaptured the number one spot there. It was a phenomenon, a box office and cultural phenomenon. And it wasn't just audiences who thought that. It bowled over critics as well. When I saw this movie... I felt the way that I'm sure people felt when they saw Wizard of Oz for the first time. Mm -hmm. I felt as if I had been introduced to a magical movie, a movie that's going to last for years and years and years and be treasured by one generation after the next. It's a great film. What you are uh, entranced with is the same thing I am, which is love. And the special effects, so what? Mm -hmm. It's love there. E.T. went on to surpass Star Wars as the highest grossing domestic release of all time with a final total of over $350 million. It's added about $75 million to that total over the years through different re-releases. And when you adjust for inflation, E.T. holds the number four spot all time on the domestic box office list with over $1.3 billion of revenue behind only Gone with the Wind, The Sound of Music, and Star Wars. In addition to being a box office sensation, E.T. was also a cultural sensation. It was everywhere, and this kind of omnipresence actually became daunting for its young stars. It's odd because I remember being really bitter, though, as, you know, as like an 11-year-old boy, because I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Couldn't do anything, you know? I mean, I was, I was kind of a prisoner in my own home for like about a year. You know, it wasn't just a movie anymore, and all of a sudden you couldn't eat a meal without somebody coming up to yeah. you and trying to embrace life on that level I think was was hard being as young as we were. There's one piece of E.T. merchandise that famously didn't succeed and I won't spend too much on it because there have been full documentaries made about this but the Christmas 1982 E.T. Atari game was so bad that it's actually credited with contributing to the collapse of the video game industry that was only resuscitated with the release of the Nintendo later in the 80s. E.T. was nothing to phone home about. Reviewers called it cumbersome, crude, maddening. If Pac-Man, E.T., and Raiders of the Lost Ark aren't selling, what will? E.T. held the box office title for over a decade until Jurassic Park passed it in 1993, another Steven Spielberg film. And at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for nine, winning four awards, including Best Sound, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects Editing, and for his fourth competitive Oscar, John Williams for Best Score. I feel very lucky to have been asked by Steven Spielberg to compose a score for this very optimistic and loving and beautiful film. And I would like to thank the orchestra here in Hollywood that, that, that contributed mightily to this soundtrack. And for me, this is a particular joy. Thank you. Fun fact, Spielberg and E.T. lost Best Director and Best Picture to the film Gandhi and its director, Sir Lord Richard Attenborough. Attenborough would later become one of Spielberg's actors in his next box office number one hit of all time, Jurassic Park, playing John Hammond. Following the success of the movie, Spielberg and Matheson briefly discussed doing a sequel, even drafting an outline called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears, but they both decided not to press their luck and to leave E.T. where it was. 
There are a couple of quasi-sequels to E.T., however. In 1985, there was a book published called E.T., The Book of the Green Planet, which followed E.T. back home, where he actually fell out of favor with his friends due to all of his misadventures on Earth, and he tried to get back to Elliot and continue to guide him as Elliot was getting older and going through life. Uh, not exactly an official canon thing, but it featured a character who was also in the E.T. theme park attraction, E.T.'s teacher, Botanicus. And that's a name that you might know courtesy of Mike Carlson, who does a podcast called Podcast the Ride and brought Botanicus into my life via movie fights when I was still at Screen Junkies. Now, I know this sounds impossible now at a time where movies are available on VOD and Blu-ray and for streaming three to four months after they hit theaters, but E.T. wasn't actually available on VHS until 1988, six years after it came out in theaters. Pepsi-Cola is pleased to announce that E.T. has come home. Home on video cassette. And to make sure everyone can bring E.T. home, Pepsi is offering a special $5 rebate with the purchase of an E.T. video and Pepsi. And it was on VHS that I discovered E.T. Now, in the first episode, we talked about my uncle, Uncle Charlie, and his role in introducing me to a lot of movies. There is another family member that had a big part in introducing me to movies, and that is my grandmother, who I called Nana. And Nana used to take me to rent movies every Wednesday when I would go to her house after school. And one movie that I very distinctly remember renting was E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I had no idea what this movie was. I don't even know why I decided to rent it. Maybe it had just come out. I don't really remember. I was young, probably six or seven years old, about the time, same time that I saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But I only remember that I rented E.T. And then the next Wednesday when we went to the video store, I rented E.T. again. And the next week I rented it again. And the next week I rented it again. I don't know how many weeks it was in a row, but I kept wanting to watch this movie. And that's why E.T. really does hold a, a very special place in my own history with movies because it really is the first movie I can remember watching that made me want to go beyond just the fact that I liked it and that I enjoyed it. I wanted to know how it was made. How did they do that? Because I knew that I was, you know, I was old enough to know that it wasn't real, that there wasn't really an alien, uh, that, that, that this was a movie, but at the same time, it, it felt so real. And I wanted to know why that was. And so it, it, it's what kicked off my obsession with Steven Spielberg and wanting to know who he was. It's what kicked off my obsession with wanting to know how movies were made and, and, and the different tricks of the trade. It really is responsible for so much of the curiosity and enthusiasm for film that I still carry with me to this day. And because of that, I have a lifetime worth of memories associated with this movie. I remember being so scared of the scene where Elliot finds E.T. out in the cornfield. <laughs> that when I was visiting some relatives who lived out in the country, there was an advertisement that said, so-and-so is coming up tonight after E.T. They meant entertainment tonight. But I thought they meant E.T. the movie, and I remember thinking, oh, I shouldn't watch that because I'm going to get really scared because we're out in the country, and there's that scene where E.T.'s out in the country too, and I know that's going to freak me out, so I shouldn't watch that. I don't know why I remember things like this. These are the weird flotsam and jetsam that float around in your brain. I also have, and this is something that my good friends know about me, uh, a mortal fear of frogs. 
I really cannot stand frogs. It is they terrify me really more than just about anything in the world. I can't even look at frogs, and I think that ET might have had a role in that fear because I think it may have started before I saw E.T., but that scene with the classroom full of frogs is pretty much my worst nightmare. And if if that frog if that frog phobia, and I'm sure there's a name for it, wasn't permanent by the time I saw E.T., I'm pretty sure the movie cemented it in my brain. The first time I saw E.T. on a big screen was actually not the version that I recently rewatched or the version that most people have seen. It was the, I think it's safe to say, ill-fated 20th anniversary re-release. And if you don't know about the 20th anniversary re-release of E.T., hot off the Star Wars Special Editions, Spielberg decided to go through and do some adjustments to E.T. for its 20th anniversary. That included going over E.T.'s face and with computer graphics to make it more expressive in a way that he said he would have done at the time if he could have. And there were also some other weirder changes. I felt that the guns were probably an inappropriate thing to do, and those guys could have easily been, been with walkie-talkies, so I thought this was an opportunity to take out the guns. E.T., the extraterrestrial, the new redone version for 2002. All the E.T. effects have been digitally upgraded, all the guns have been digitally changed to walkie-talkies, and the word terrorist has been changed to hippie. Why the hell do these directors keep updating their movies? I'm not going to lie. I was not a big fan of the 2002 special edition, even though that was my first time seeing E.T. on the big screen. And as a matter of fact, you can't really find it that much anywhere because Spielberg has said openly that he will never go back and do that again. And as a matter of fact, never released the special edition on its own. He always released it in conjunction with the original theatrical cut of the movie. But for future editions like this, there is no copy of the 2002 special edition on this blu-ray as a matter of fact it is out of circulation and i did a little psa for collectors last week when i was talking about bill and ted and bill and ted's bogus journey and special features i will also say i used to have the dvd that did have the 20th anniversary special edition but i got rid of it when i upgraded to blu-ray and i so wish that i hadn't done that because even though i don't like that edition of the film I do still wish that I had access to it, almost as a historical record, because I can find little clips here and there, but I do still wish I had that version of the film, if only as an instruction tool for maybe how you don't necessarily always have to go back and fix what was wrong with a movie. Something else that I don't even know if I was aware of when I was a kid, I'm sure I was on some level, but that has become a lot deeper to me now that I've grown older, is that E.T. is also one of the first if not one of the only movies that I can remember watching growing up where the kids were in a functional household that was the product of divorce. I grew up with a single mother for pretty much my entire life. And this is a reason why I was so happy that we could have Dee Wallace on the show today because I identified so much with the character of Elliot because even though he had siblings and and I'm an only child, I didn't have siblings. I related so much to the aspects of his character and also to Mary, his mother, who was portrayed so beautifully by Dee Wallace, how she shoulders the burden of raising a family and shielding her children from the pain that she is experiencing. And I know that my mother did so much of that growing up as well. And that's something that I realized, obviously, later in life. I wasn't aware of that when I was a kid. But that really only 
tightens and enhances my bond uh, uh, to this movie. Uh, but I also related to Elliot so much because there is, and, and and I know this because I was told this growing up, a lot of times if you're a kid and you're, you're in a, a family that's the product of divorce and particularly a family where one of the parents isn't really around that much, it ages you. You you grow up a little quicker. And I think that I felt a bond with Elliot because we were very similar in that way. Elliot has grown up a little more quickly maybe than he had to. And I feel like I, the same happened to me. And so the idea of, of a friend, somebody who is also an outsider and who's looking for a friend, I think that I bonded myself to that character and to that movie in a really deep way and maybe even on a subconscious level at that age because I related to it so much. And I think that's why a lot of kids, people my age or even people younger than me that have seen the movie who come from divorced families might really bond to this movie in a much different way because it does capture that dynamic and those feelings that you can certainly relate to if you don't come from a divorced family, but that I think are captured so well and that are so noticeable if you do. And it's something that E.T. always did so well, and and I respect so much. You can tell that this was a big driver for why Steven Spielberg wanted to tell this story because maybe that's why I connect so much to him as a filmmaker because our stories are similar as far as growing up and the kinds of things that happened in our childhood. So um, this is a therapy session, and thank you for watching it. But I also think it's important to look at, and it's one of the reasons I love doing this show, not just music and acting and awards and why why we like the movies for these reasons, but why we as people bond and imprint to certain films over other films. And I think this is a big reason why I bonded and imprinted with E.T., and maybe that's true of you as well. Or it explains why you might be a, a big fan of a certain film. When you see yourself reflected on screen, when you see your circumstances or something about your life or your family, for me with film, that is such a meaningful thing that it occupies a special place in my life. And I think that's true of a lot of people, which is why movies are such a powerful medium. Beyond the thematic elements, there are also some cinematic elements of the film uh, that really get me every time and it's mostly tied to John Williams score which is my favorite of his scores it, it's it's my favorite movie score of all time uh, but there is particularly the end of the film when the bikes take off and they go across the sun not not the moon shot with Elliot which is the iconic shot but when the bikes go across the sun every time I see that every time I watch the movie and I've watched it dozens of times it's like an electric charge goes through my body. It never fails. I, I thought that maybe that might wear off someday, uh, but if anything, it only gets more intense. And I really do think for me, as far as spectacle goes and using the medium, that is kind of the peak of what a combination of music and, and cinematography and storytelling can do that effect it can have on you. And, and some people have it for music when they hear a great song. Some people have it for art, for, for visual art, painting. But for me, it's that scene in E.T. It's like a, it's like a jolt runs through my body. And actually that piece of music, because the end of the movie is like a 15 minute suite 
uh, of music that, that, that basically just takes you all the way through. It's a movement in the symphony of E.T., that John Williams has written. And I, and I really do think that John Williams and, and people like Mozart and Beethoven aren't that far apart. The medium is just different. Instead of writing a symphony or an opera, he wrote a movie score. But I had that track on a John Williams compilation CD growing up. And that 15-minute piece of music also, and this is another little keystone for me, listening to it, I remember thinking about, not just in relation to E.T., but because it was so tied to movies, I remember thinking about, what if I took clips from other movies and put it to this music? And what would it look like? And what kind of movie would I put here? And what kind of film, you know, would I put over this part? And this would be an adventure film. And I realize now, too, that, you know, editing is something that I do a lot. It's really what got me here because it was as an editor that I started at Screen Junkies, which led to movie fights and everything else that I've done. But I've realized that that music and thinking about putting clips to that particular piece of music was also the first time that I ever edited something in my head where I started thinking about, without really knowing it, the art of film editing and the art of taking music and image and juxtaposing them together and what kind of an effect could that have. And that's still actually a dream project of mine is to do this 15-minute long super cut of cinema to that particular piece of music. And and maybe it's one of those lifetime things, a, a Synecdoche, New York-type project that I'm just going to work on forever and I'll finish it and take my last breath and hopefully a really long time from now but it it just ties me to this movie even more it it just cements how this movie has worked in my dna and i think that that's what a great piece of influential art can do it's not just seeing it and enjoying it. it it infiltrates your brain and 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 changes how you look at things and recontextualizes things and so et has always been such a meaningful thing to me and I, you know, I don't necessarily believe in fate, uh, but I will say one of the most incredible coincidences of my life is that a couple of years ago, Mara and I went to see John Williams play at the Hollywood Bowl, which he has previously done every year. Obviously, that didn't happen this year. Uh, but two years ago when we went, it just so happened, number one, that Steven Spielberg was there for the first time ever and was introducing different pieces of music that John Williams did. He Williams was on stage conducting his own music, which was incredible to see. But we got to the end of the show, and Spielberg said that Williams would now do the entire end sequence from E.T., would be the last song that he would do. And to be sitting in that space and to have Steven Spielberg on stage, who had such an incredible profound influence over me with through his film and to have John Williams on stage who as a musician and and, and an artist has had a profound influence on me composing who had composed my favorite movie score of all time who was doing it live to picture so you could see it um take that electric jolt and multiply it by 10 it was a once in a lifetime experience uh it was an experience that brought me to tears it's 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 one of my most treasured memories And when people shrug off movies and say, oh, it's pop art, it's whatever, I think that is so dismissive of the profound impact and power that they can have on people's lives. Because as I've said since I've started this show, movies aren't just something you watch. Movies can be a reflection of your life. You can tie them to events in your life, to a period of time in your life, and I think, you know, not to everybody, but to so many people, they are profoundly powerful 
and can carry such meaning. And this movie, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, is, is one of them. Is one of those movies that has meant that much to me. And I have a guest on today who can speak to the production of this movie, obviously was a key member of the cast, and really just, if you're a fan of E.T., has so much insight and told me so many things that I didn't know about the making of this film. D. Wallace is my guest on today's show, and even though I've already done the interview, I'm still kind of in disbelief that it's happening. So without further ado, here's my interview with D. Wallace. I am so excited to welcome this guest to all my movies. She is in E.T., the movie that we are talking about today, but she has also been in so many other great movies, TV shows, and you can check out her website, IamDWallace.com, where you can see so much of the other stuff that she does, because acting is just a tiny part. I'm so happy to welcome D. Wallace to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here, baby. <laughs> so et uh, we, i've talked about it in the in the run-up to this interview what it means to me and and my life but but something that i, I really want to talk about is growing up this was such a key movie for me and one yeah. of the reasons why is that i was raised uh by a single mother and et was one of the first not even movies, one of the first movies, TV shows, anything that I watched that featured a, a family with a single mom. And, and I think that yeah. might be one of the reasons that it was it drew me to that movie and why I connected with it so much. Um, is that is that a, an angle that drew you to the film as well? No, I, I wouldn't be able to say that, but I... I just thought the whole message of the movie was life-changing. And I remember, because I had to go uh, over to the studio and they literally put me in a room because they wouldn't let any of the scripts out to uh, read it. And I I called my... my um, Asian. And I said, you know, I don't think this is going to do a lot for me, but I think it's going to do a lot for the world. <laughs> you know, he's right, wasn't he? <laughs> um, but I, you know, I look at all the mothers I play as um, really important life-affirming parts in one way or another. Right. And I... I actually think that this was the first single mother on on the big screen. According to Stephen, it was. <laughs> well, it's I'll that's him if it's wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but it's a recurring theme, and 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 Spielberg is a, is a, is a filmmaker that I connected with as well because. Uh, the idea of divorce and single parents is something that is recurring throughout a lot of his movies. So, you know, it, it's I, yeah. I just feel like there's a lot of life experience that he brought uh, to that role as well. Was that something that he shared with you as you were developing the character, sort of just his perspective on the family and and the, the dynamic? Not much. No. No? Um, I think I learned most of that after the film was already made. He, um, you know, Melissa Madison wrote such an amazing script. Everything was there on the paper. And Stephen knew 
um, for much of my life, I was, my father was an alcoholic most of my life. So for all practical purposes, I was raised by a strong mother, by herself. Hmm. So uh, he knew a lot of that background of mine and knew in my heart I really understood this woman and the responsibility that a mother like your mother um, through the great love for her child has to take, wants to take. You know? <laughs> I he loved share a lot of that while we were shooting. Well, one thing that I really loved, and 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 I saw it, uh, I saw it a lot growing up too. When you look at the character of Mary, is is how much of her is 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 happening below the surface? Because especially in a single parent family, you know, obviously you're dealing with your own life as an as an adult, but you also have kids, and and you, you don't necessarily want to expose all of that to them at a young age. Yes. When you're thinking about how to play that character, it is almost playing on two different levels. Um, how did how did you approach that to say, you know, I I want to I want to give her this this lived in quality, but that's a difficult it's a difficult approach to take sometimes. You know, um, I have to send all the thanks for that to my teacher Charles Conrad, my mentor. He um. The technique that he teaches, that that he taught, um, you don't break anything down. You um, you don't do the typical. Well, they said this about her, and she said this about her, and uh, you don't really do any of that. You get your energy very high, and you throw all your energy onto the character or the extraterrestrial or the werewolf or whatever you're working, you, you throw your energy. And what happens when you get your energy really high and you throw it is that you get out of your mind. And that's when priceless moments like laughing at penis breath <laughs> happens and um, the big t dinner table scene where I got up and left the dinner table. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't in there. Mm. And, but when Henry, because Stephen would tell the kids, all right, say this, now. all right, say that. Now. So, I loved working that way. A lot of adult actors don't, but I love not knowing what's coming in the moment. And so when he said he's in Mexico with Sally, I took such a huge hit and I thought, oh, I, I don't want the kids to see me cry. I don't want them to see me cry. So I got up and left and Stephen came over and said, what happened? Why'd you do that? And I explained to him what happened. And in that moment, he got the crew to come in and build the kitchen set with the sink so I could walk over to the kitchen sink and then turn around in that big close up and say, he hates Mexico. 
Wow. And all that just happened because I didn't think, you know, because I was merry in the moment. Right. Well, and, and so much of, you know, I was reading about a lot of your work outside of the acting world. And, and so much of what you talk about now is is exactly that, is is about yeah. the energy inside yourself. Um, and so that's so interesting to hear that that, that is, is a method that you bring to to your acting as well is, is about finding that internal energy and not so much the external forces. Well, and I had no idea until I really actually started channeling in my healing work that I've been channeling for years in my acting. Right. Right. Uh, But I never called it that Charles never called it that. Um, But we would be in class watching these amazing things happen. I remember that he started screaming at me one time because we weren't supposed to do a piece of material that we were familiar with or had ever done before. So I got up to do this scene and I didn't know this scene. And I started limping and he's, D Wallace, you're not supposed to do it. I said, Charles, I swear, I have never seen this scene before. How do you know she's crippled then? Well, that was the magic that happened in my acting class all the time with everybody. And when you can capture that, when the camera's rolling, you know, you just can't pay enough for that. Well, it's it's that naturalism really does shine through, especially now that I hear you talk about that, because I, another moment that I pegged as I was rewatching the movie was the scene where where you finally actually see E.T. and, and you've got the coffee and they open the door and and you laugh. Uh, you know, it's, it's, whereas the the other instinct might be to yell or scream or, but it's just like that, that natural instinct to laugh, but it feels so real. It it doesn't feel. But if you, if you think your kids are playing with stuff in the bathroom and you walk in and your mind isn't going to go automatically to, Oh my God, (laughs) there's a monster in it. You know? Yeah. First reaction is, what's this shit? What do you guys <laughs> do now, right? <laughs> and then there's somewhere to go and someplace to build. Also. Right. One thing I hated about that scene, though, is he made me turn the coffee cup over and spill my coffee. And I said, oh, Stephen, please don't make me do that. That's so typical. He said, I want you to spill the coffee out of I'm so, you know, he's a director. So I, my job is to make it work then. But right. Well, the thing I think that makes it work so well is that dynamic between you and obviously the kids has got to be, it, it's so well done. And yes. I, I feel like those those that group of actors, you know, the, the, that label of child actors is, is put on actors who are younger. But it feels like all three of them were so real and so naturalistic. As you, were, as you were working with them, was it more like working with peers and less like working oh, with, yeah. you know, quote unquote kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, even little Drew. And, you know, Drew was so young that she really didn't understand where reality stopped and fantasy started. So mm-hmm. 
you know, Stephen had to have guys keeping ET um, going alive because when he wasn't working, which was a lot of the time, Drew would go over and start talking to him. So there were a couple of guys that had to blink his eyes and stuff so that Drew thought he would get some kind of a reaction. Well, I the the scene where um, E.T.'s dying, right? And I walk in with Drew. So I went over to the soundstage uh, that she was waiting on, and I said, okay, Drew, we're going to go do this, this scene now where E.T.'s dying, but you know E.T.'s just acting. He's not sick, you know, he's just acting. She says, I know, do you, do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> so I picked her up, and we walked, and she took one look at E.T. and went, oh, geez, he's dying, he's dying. And Stephen's going, rolling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was that fast. So, you know, you make a movie like this and, and I'm sure coming out of it, you're, you know, the work that you've done and you know, the work that, that the other actors have done in, in the scenes with you, but you can never really know how the finished movie is, is going to turn out. Never. Trust me. <laughs> to, to see it grow and not just be a hit, but to be something that becomes Ever, I mean, it's 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 TV yeah, commercials and video games. That's more than just the movie, though. That's a movie whose time it was. That's a movie that landed when everybody's hearts and lives and hope needed it. Dear God, somebody do one now, right? right. But that's. That's that's what makes a blockbuster like this is when the script is good, the film is good, the direction's superb, you know, the music is phenomenal, the editing brilliant. But then the audience has to be in that place to receive it. Mm. You know, and it it was just a perfect storm. What do you think it was about the time that it was released that audiences were so ready to to latch onto this movie in the way that they did? I think we were on the abyss of holding on to our innocence and our view and perspective of a beautiful world. And a world where even people from another world might come to visit and explore peace and love with us. You know, Mm -hmm. these days, as desperately as we need to go back to that understanding and that realization, I don't know how E.T. would do now. Mm. People are so skeptical and negative and we need it for sure. I, I think it's interesting as the movie has lived on past its initial release. And I've read, I've read, you know, a couple of times that people have asked you about it too. For some reason, people seem to think that after the movie, 
that your character Mary would have gotten into a romance with with Keys with Peter Coyote's character, and I, I've never understood why people seem to think that there was some kind of a romance faded between the two of you, but I, I never saw it myself. No, <laughs> you didn't see it because it wasn't there, <laughs> and it was never intended to be there. It, there wasn't even any illusion in the script about it there. It's just everybody going, uh, well, where's the romantic, you know, <laughs> they were used to seeing that, I guess, in films. Or yeah. they were living vicariously through it and hoping for that relationship for themselves. I don't know. But it was never intended to be in there. I'm curious, you know, and, and it may go back to what you were talking about, about drawing power from from within yourself and not so much from from externally, because not just with E.T., but but so many of the projects that you've been involved in where, you know, you you have to as a character, you're in a certain situation. But there's so much, whether it's, you know, the howling with the special effects or or, or Cujo or E.T., so many of the of the different films and, and TV shows that you've done where. Is it different where it's supernatural, the things that are happening are supernatural and you have to kind of ignore the mechanics behind it all? Or is it the same as putting yourself in the shoes of, of, of any character that you would be asked to play? I think every actor that you ask would give you a different answer for that. For me, it's all the same. You know, if, if I have to play a scene with a, an abused, abusing husband mm-hmm. that's coming after me, Really emotionally not very different than a werewolf coming after me or a rabbit dog coming after me. You are threatened with your life. A tornado, you name it. You know, the principle is the same thing. And I, I think the greatest challenge is to really be in the moment and not go to the next moment before it would naturally happen, like the reaction of seeing E.T. in the laugh and mm-hmm. penis breath and <laughs> no penis breath talk in my house. You know, I, those things happen on every set that I'm on. Yeah. Where something happens in the performance and then the director sees something else and then the, editor or the DP might come in and then everybody and then everything explodes into this amazingly magic moment (laughs) when everybody if everybody's free to bring in their ideas um, the magic is just unbelievable Peter Jackson just you know he and Rob Zombie oh my gosh whatever just bring in whatever and we'll see what works. And I love, you know, for an actor, uh, there's nothing better. That kind of open collaboration and no ideas are unwelcome. Yeah. And that trust and, you know, like, um, cause I mean, I, I've played some pretty far out things for Rob Zombie, but I trust him I trust him to let me go really, really, really far, but not too far. Right. You know? And so he trusts me and I trust him and there's nothing better. 
That's what. That's really when the magic happens. And how well, can you not trust Steven Spielberg? Well, right. I, I mean, it's especially, you know, I mean, he was, it's, it's hard to think about because he's such a huge figure now, but that when he made ET, that was only seven years after jaws. And it's, it's, he just made so many in a row that you think of this huge filmography, but he was still in relative terms early in his career. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Cause one thing that I, that I always talk about on the show, if if I can remember them, um, is is the first time that I saw the movie that I'm talking about. E.T., I remember it was something that I rented with my grandmother. She used to take me to rent movies, and, and I watched it then. But a bit, probably a little bit different for you the first time you saw the actual movie, the finished movie. But was there anything that you remember specifically when you when you saw it all put together? Like, you know, just... Just well, we the first time I saw it all put together was at Universal Studios with a bunch of suits. <laughs> not how you want to see your movie, because they're all sitting there going, well, I'm not going to react in case my boss doesn't react. You know, so I went uh, down to Hollywood and stood in line at the Cinerama Dome <laughs> with a bunch of my students that I was teaching at the time and was overwhelmed when I sat there and listened to the, the tears and the crying and the laughter and the cheering. And Oh my God, it was, it was beyond a movie. It was kind of like I felt when I reacted to Hamilton, it's Mm. not a play. It's an experience. You know, it it takes you out of yourself, <laughs> right? And that's what E.T. did the first time I saw it with, with a really live audience. As, as you know, the, 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 the films and the projects that you're in grow and they, they gain new fans over time, it's not just the people that saw them when they came out, they endure and, and you have a continuing legacy of, of people that love what you do. Is there a point at which it gets intimidating or is does it still feel fresh for you? Oh, I, I don't think it ever gets old for me feeling the love from my fans, ever. I, I love doing the conventions for that <laughs> very reason because... I get to meet everybody and hear the amazing stories, just mind-blowing stories about experiences they've all had with my movies and get to hug them and get to mm, get a personal experience about who they really are. No, it doesn't get old for me. (laughs) Well, I, I do want to say, you know, be- right before we wrap that, that I do want to thank you because as I mentioned, I, I, from the first time I saw it and, and as I've grown old and gotten older, I, I will always see a little piece of my life reflected in ET. And, and a lot of that is, is the, the humanity and the, the genuine nature and the strength that you gave that character. So thank you for doing that because I didn't see that a lot growing up and especially not when I was younger. So you really did bring so much to that character and and I'm sure it means a lot to, to so many people. 
that that means a lot to hear that from you. Thank you. <laughs> so. Uh, it, it, it's true. It's it's and it's one of my favorites. Like I said, it's it's a relatively new show, but one of my favorite things and getting to speak with some of the people involved in these films is is sharing why they are so meaningful. Because you know, I, I'm just one person, but there are so many others out there like me who who, who these these movies mean so much to. Um. So well, D Wallace, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I I think that's. I used to tell my students that you can heal more people in one night than a doctor can in his lifetime. <laughs> we give people permission to feel when they can't, laugh when they can't, cry when they won't, you know. It's whether we're making them laugh or scaring them or opening their hearts like E.T., it's... It's an interactive experience that we're having together. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, D. Wallace, thank you so much for joining me today. You can check her out on her website, imdwallace.com. And always working. This is one of the things you can always find something new uh, coming out. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was an amazing conversation to have, really to have had at any point in the show's run, but to have it so early, uh, I want to thank Dee Wallace again for taking the time to talk about E.T. And before we go, because we do talk about physical media on the show, I did want to go over this E.T. Blu-ray that I have. It is the 30th anniversary edition, so it was issued in 2012. It's got a few different special features, bonus features on it. One of them is a documentary called Steven Spielberg and E.T., which is about 12 minutes long. It's a new interview with Spielberg. It's pretty interesting. But the big thing that's on this one that is fantastic is something called the E.T. Journals, which is about an hour long, and it's made exclusively of behind-the-scenes footage shot during the production of E.T. And E.T. was a production that was documented extensively, which is kind of rare for a movie uh, at that time. But it takes you through the whole film chronologically, pretty much, with behind-the-scenes footage, etc. You get to see things like the Steven Spielberg Halloween footage that I mentioned. A lot of Steven Spielberg talking to Henry Thomas and what their rapport is like. They had an article on you. I didn't recognize you. Really? Yeah. What magazine? Um, I don't know. It's in the newspaper. It is a really great look at the making of the film. So if you can find a version that has the ET journals on it, I highly recommend it. Uh, Then there's some legacy special features that were put out around the 20th anniversary of the movie. There's a documentary called ET, A Look Back. There's one called The Creation and Evolution of ET. There's a cast reunion that happened around the 20th anniversary. Uh, There's also a special on the premiere of the 20th anniversary special edition of ET, which even though I wasn't crazy about that version of it, uh, you do get to see John Williams, who conducted a live orchestra throughout the duration of the film, how that happened, what the mechanics were going into that. You also get production stills, uh, the usual picture galleries, the theatrical trailer, uh, a television spot for the Special Olympics that was done. Uh, So this version of E.T. actually does have a really good collection of special features. Uh, I, I highly recommend this edition. I think maybe one or two other editions have come out since then, but this is a great version of the film to have. 
have. If you still have your DVD with the special edition on it from 2002, hold that just for posterity's sake because you can't find that anymore. It is out of circulation. It's the opposite of what Lucas is doing with Star Wars. You can only find the theatrical version of E.T. now. Uh, but uh, I, I'm very happy with this version of the film and this 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 version of the Blu-ray uh, because I think it is a good balance between great extras and a really great looking print of the movie. And that's it for this episode of All My Movies. Thank you so much for listening to me talk about E.T., one of the most important films ever made, uh, at least as it ties to my life. I want to thank Skybound, Christian Harloff, and the Schmodown Entertainment Network for helping me get this show off the ground. I also want to thank my producer, Ian Start, for all of his hard work, Frank Janish, putting everything together. Thank you so much. And don't forget, there is still time to get exclusive GOAT merchandise and not just t-shirts. Look at this mug. We got a mug right here that says GOAT on it. Again, I'm not saying it's me. If you think it's me, I'm very flattered. But whoever you think the GOAT is, if you want to represent them and if you want to represent the movie trivia schmodown, be sure to check out this merchandise. You can find the description down in the link below. This is only going to be available for a limited time. So grab it now before it's gone. Uh, but this is fun stuff to, ha- to have around. I can't have too much of this stuff going on around here. It's going to give me an inflated head. It's going to give me an ego. Uh, but be sure to check out that merchandise. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you're listening to us on Spotify, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with a movie that is still tied to Steven Spielberg, but definitely not one of the best movies in the Steven Spielberg-averse. It's still going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk about that then, but for now, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks for watching. facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.